Well, good evening, everybody. I'm so glad to be here this beautiful Saturday. I hope you're glad to be here, too. If you have a Bible, would you turn or swipe to the book of Luke? Luke chapter 19 is where we will be here in just a moment as we bring our Lent series of the unvarnished Jesus to a close this evening. The unvarnished Jesus is all about admitting that we just might have some filters or varnishes that have collected and perhaps even distorted our image of Jesus and his way. Some layers we've inherited, others we've discovered, some have just creeped in from our culture, and the understanding each week is not all the layers need removing. You don't go pick up a dresser off the side of the road and just sand it away till it's nothing. Some layers, like Jesus is Lord, that's pretty foundational. But I would tell you that all layers need examining. Jesus is too surprising and compelling to stop seeking and finding. It's just part of the journey of his followers to put our own expectations, our own ideas of how he should run the world, our own assumptions of what he should do for us and with us, we've got to examine those. And nowhere do we see varnishes abounding like Palm Sunday. They bring with themselves on that road to Jerusalem, all their assumptions and expectations. But the invitation this week, as every other, is to unpack these questions. The first is, of course, what is the varnish that needs removing from our own image of Jesus and his way? And then, in what way tonight is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? Usually, I've had an answer later on in the message, with a slide and a picture that looks like this, and I give you an answer. There are no answers I'm going to give you tonight. I hope that we'll enter into this familiar scene, this familiar story, and listen for a moment of how he might want us to see him for who he is and for what he's doing as we enter into this special week, as Reiner mentioned earlier. As I said before, Palm Sunday is a clear example of some varnishing colliding with reality. But those will be challenged by the week ahead, especially when Jesus finishes his journey to the cross. All right, let's look at Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead, and as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, you know, with that new colt smell. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. So apparently Jesus has made prior arrangements, and this cult is important. This is why Luke is giving us all these details and continues in verse 32. So those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the cult, its owner said, Are you stealing my cult? 
No, they said, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the, Lord's, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, I think people start to get the hint that something's going on here. Because then they start to spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Why? For all the miracles they had seen. Then they quote Psalm 118 that we read earlier. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, in the psalm, the psalmist talks about waving boughs. Luke doesn't say anything about palms, but make no mistake, there were palms being waved. This was a time of praise, and these people are geeked, except for some. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Now he's picking up another biblical theme playing out right before them. Finally, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. And listen to this. While everybody's waving branches, throwing cloaks, and singing, Jesus wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because why? You did not recognize the time of God's coming or visitation to you. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. And because there's so many amazing prayers for Palm Sunday, I'm going to ask you to read another one. Prayer is a soul at attention before God, so even if these aren't your words, would you bring your soul in attention? And let's pray these words together. It is right to praise you, Almighty God, for the acts of love by which you have redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. On this day, he entered the holy city of Jerusalem in triumph and was proclaimed as king of kings by those who spread their garments and branches of palm along his way. Let these branches be for us signs of his victory and grant that we who bear them in his name may ever hail him as our king and follow him in the way that leads to eternal life who lives and reigns in glory with you and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Amen, amen. What's the best moment of a road trip? What's the best moment of the road trip? I knew it, I knew it. I knew it, I knew it. Amy Sinclair would say Bucky's because Amy Sinclair was with my Amy on a road trip and she 
was living it up like it was the mall at Bucky's. He said gas station, and I know Robert meant Bucky's. And I wish you could see my outline because I said, they're going to say Bucky's. But that's not the answer. It's not the answer. She told me how much you spent at Bucky's yesterday, Amy. Oh, my Lord. This sermon is for you. The best moment of a road trip, although Bucky's is a very close second, and if you know, you know. The best moment of a road trip is when you see your destination right there in front of you. I just booked a trip to Galveston this week, and I know y'all hate on Galveston. Some of you hate on Galveston. I love Galveston, and Galveston has a great moment at the end of the road trip because you leave the mainland, and you go on that big bridge, the Galveston Causeway, and it goes up, and they tried to gussy it up and add some fun, like, beachy, painted, like, mural stuff, but it doesn't really matter because the best moment is when you start to crest that bridge toward that barrier island and you see Galveston and all its slightly dirty, slightly stinky, but wonderful glory. That's the best moment of the road trip, right? Or you know it when you're coming home too. And you all have your favorite view of the Dallas skyline, depending on which highway you're coming in. But when you see that thing there, you're like, ah, yes, finally. Imagine that moment and ramp it up 100%. This is some of the flavor that Luke is giving us with this road trip that, make no mistake, they had made before. They'd been to Galveston before, but their Galveston is Jerusalem. And even followers of Jesus, if they were from the Jewish tradition, had made this road trip before from the north, or in this case, from the east, and they had the same experience. They saw the city, and they were excited. They had made this road trip before, but this time was different. The reason they'd made the road trip is because it's during Passover, and Passover is the biggest festival in the Jewish year. Passover was like Christmas and Easter rolled into one. This was the biggest holiday, the biggest festival. So they're already excited, and they're more excited when they see the place right there. So the pilgrims are making their way up, and the excitement is building and they're coming from the east, and you got to imagine the geography, because Luke tells us about where they're coming from, and there's the cult thing and all that. And so they come from below sea level. And the Mount of Olives is no slouch of a mountain. It's a pretty serious hill. And so you're going from below sea level up an altitude, where sea level is about halfway on the height of Mount of olives, so they're already like hiking, and they know they're close, and then they scale the Mount of Olives, and then Luke tells us that as they begin to descend down, that's when people grab the ox cord, and they pick just the perfect song for the best moment of their road trip, and they start singing Psalm 118. It's during the Passover, they start to sing the song about a royal entry, and you just start to feel the buzz amongst the group of Jesus' followers, 
And it ain't just the 12. There's more than just the 12. They're all going to Passover, but this Passover is different. This is the Passover that Jesus is finally going to be revealed as king. So they've got the tunes, they've got the time, and they've got the ride. Why would Luke make such a big deal about the Jason Bourne uh, machinations of, I know a guy, trust me, if you just tell him this, he'll know. Just say the Lord needs it. That's all you need. Why go into all that detail? Luke is leaping and screaming off the page to say, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9. What is Zechariah 9? I'm glad you asked. It's not on the screen. I want you to hear it. Zechariah 9, 9 is about the coming of Jerusalem's king. And he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A donkey, a new donkey, a young donkey, new donkey smell. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. We've got the tunes, Psalm 118, save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We've got the time, the liberation festival of Passover. We've got the ride. Look, he's doing it. He's doing it. He's doing the Zechariah thing. And there's even this other layer where just around that time, Pilate, who lived in a swanky place in Caesarea on the coast, but he was the ruler over that region. He hated this week, and he hated these people, but because they were so geeked about Passover, this dude had to come from the other side of the town, from the west, and every time he came, you think he was riding that new car-smelling donkey? Shake your head no. This dude was on a war horse, with guards upon guards upon guards. He comes from the other side of the city on a different animal with a different song. And he's trying to say, don't try anything funny. I'm king of this town. Then you have Jesus on the literal other side of town doing Zechariah stuff because Zechariah said, uh-uh. I'm going to remove the war horses. Nah, -uh. your king's going to come righteous, but humble. Your king is going to come, and don't look for the war horse or the sword. Look for the one who's going to be riding a donkey. That's where the freedom's going to come. That's where the liberation's going to come. The tunes, the time, the ride, but dig this. Think back to every time Someone tried to say, Jesus, I think you're the Messiah. What does he say? I'll remind you, when we started our Lenten series, the first week after Ash Wednesday, the first message I gave was in Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is praying. He comes back and he asks his followers, hey, who did the crowd say that I am? And they say, some think you're like, an Elijah figure, like a powerful prophet. Some think you might be John the Baptist. And he goes, okay, okay. 
And he goes, but what about you guys? Who do you say I am? You know, remember what Peter says? You're the Christ, which is Greek for you're the Messiah. You're the one that we think is God's anointed one, God's anointed king, the one that Zechariah 9 and all the others talk about. And then what does Jesus say? Yeah, but don't tell anyone. He goes, by the way, literally right after this, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, all the gatekeepers of Zechariah on. 500 years they've had these prophecies, but they're going to see me. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. You're right. But this is the road I'm walking. Way back, Luke chapter 9 and elsewhere, I think you're the king. And he says, right, shh. They don't need to know this yet. There's too much varnish. There's too much expectation. There's too much writing on this. And then we jump to Luke 19. He's walking in. People are throwing their outer jackets on the ground. They're waving palm branches. They're singing, blessed is the king. He's the one that comes. No wonder the Pharisees say, hush. Pilate's going to hear you from across town, number one. And number two, get off that donkey He is not our king. Days later, as Reiner mentioned, there's going to be more people thrown into the mix, not just with these pilgrims, but others. And the chief priest, the one who was the gatekeeper of Zechariah and all the other prophecies, will say, we have no king but Caesar. You want to talk about varnishes and expectations? There is a varnish of what power looked like. There is a varnish of what freedom looked like. And it looked like a war horse and a sword, not a donkey and a cross. But something is different. I told you about this Passover. When the Pharisees say hush, Jesus says, if they hush, watch out. These rocks are going to declare it. Every time Jesus told him to hush, he kept saying, now's not the time. Now's not the time. Now's not the time. I guess when he's riding on a donkey and people are saying, blessed is the king who comes to save us, Jesus says, yeah, now's the time. This is the first time and the only time that Jesus will allow this kind of public accolade. That should instruct us and inform us and cause us to look at it more closely. Now might be the time. The tunes, the time, the ride, all of these expectations. They're at the best moment of the road trip. People are singing. And remember what Jesus is doing? He's weeping. Jesus wept. There's something about Jerusalem that these pilgrims see something of Jesus, and it ain't just Zechariah vibes. They praised him for the miracles he had done. You remember that? They loved the stuff that Jesus did for them. They loved the talk of kingship and freedom and forgiveness. There's something, however, that's preventing them from going a step further. 
do you understand the difference between like seeing Jesus, but then also recognizing what he's about? Reiner, I mentioned it before because he did our scripture and prayer time. He preached at Our Calling where he works, the homeless ministry we've done a lot with and for over the years that Amy has volunteered for so long. He was preaching at their worship gathering, and I went down there this Wednesday, and he said something I've been thinking about since. Stop me if I misquote you. He says, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and actually following him. Is that fair? You can know a lot about somebody. It's a whole other thing to be in relationship and to journey with. I knew a lot about Amy in the years that we dated. It was a wholly other experience to stand at an altar and say, I do. I'm in this. For better or for worse, whatever the road takes us, we are partnering, we are uniting, we're in this together. It was one thing to know that she liked pickles and ice cream, not together. It was a wholly other thing to bring her home an enormous jar of best-made pickles and win husband of the year a few weeks ago. We're partnering together, we're walking. It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's a wholly other thing to follow him. They see Jesus as king. I love it when you do the stuff that heals me, but I'm not sure that I'm going to walk with you toward the cross. So he's weeping over a city and he's saying, listen, I've been here telling you, repent, turn away from your way, join this. This is it. This is the kingdom. And they say, I'm not sure I like your methods. If only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize the time of God's visitation. Verse 44. When Jesus said all that strange stuff about an embankment and whatever, I need you to understand that this is not some revelation talk. This was a literal historical moment that happened decades after Jesus is crucified. There will be another Messiah that comes and he's going to get the job done, not on a donkey, not with the cross, but with a war horse and a sword. And Rome's going to say, that was cute. And then they build an embankment around the city and the siege lasts for a long time. People are starving and dying. Mothers are weeping. So Jesus is literally walking to the cross and saying, you missed your chance. You are choosing the way of the world. You're choosing the way of violence. Caiaphas and all those, we have no king but Caesar. You are hitching your wagon to the wrong horse, and it's going to cost you. And when Jesus is weeping, you need to understand that he's not weeping from a place of, I told you so, or that'll teach you. He is grieving because he is God's king for those people. Psalm 118 is for the person entering Jerusalem. And his own people reject him. His own people don't see him. That's why when John starts his story in John chapter 1, he said he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to those who did, God gave them the gift of life. You see, the way of the cross and the donkey feels like its end is death. But Jesus will say, if you keep going with me, I promise you there's life on the other side. 
But so often we choose the way of pragmatics, of the war horse and the sword. And all we find at the end of that road is just death, period, done. But were we to follow Jesus, not just know it, not just see it, but recognize it and go with him there, that's where we find life on the other side. So the big question for this evening is this. If you want to wave a branch, are you willing to carry a cross? This is the thing that's been eating my lunch all week. It's one thing to say, we praise you for the miracles. Hosanna, yes! Before Hosanna, or after Hosanna was a prayer, it became a praise. To put the question another way, if you're willing to lay down your coat, are you willing to lay down your own agendas, expectations, opinions, fill in the blank? Are you willing to really follow even if you know it's headed toward a cross? I remember being a youth camp kid that would have a tearful rededication on the last night of camp. Mm, get that band going and the lights going. And I would make these bold and marvelous declarations. Lord Jesus, I rededicate myself to you. I give you my life. This is because I didn't know what the word repent was. I will never, ever, ever do that again except in three days when I'm home and back in my rhythm. Lord, I give you my life, but I'm not going to give you my money. Lord, I give you my life. My heart is yours, oh Lord, but I'm not going to give you my time. That's the thing. I love my time. <laughs> and this is sounding like a youth group talk, and I don't say this to guilt you or to shame you. I say this because don't we have a disconnect there's a disconnect of theory and practice. It's one thing to know about Jesus. It's another thing to follow him in this life. When are our own expectations and agendas and actions taking precedent of what Jesus is doing? When is our own sense of, finally, he's going to do it. This is it. This Passover is different. Play that song again, bro. We're going to go and do it to Rome. I'm going to talk about on Good Friday how Jesus was after the deeper enemies of sin, death, and evil. And those that were waving a branch and throwing their coat couldn't see it in that moment. All they saw was something big is about to happen, but they had their own ideas of what it was. I think a litmus test when our varnishes and opinions collide with the reality of Jesus and what he's up to is this. You see that thing on social media. That person says that thing that is a collision with your own worldview. You encounter that person that doesn't fit your box of who is good and right. And you feel the temperature start to rise. You know what I'm saying? Do you know the experience? Let's take social media. You're feeling that temperature begin to rise because they want you to feel it. They want you to rage. They want you to take every thought as ultimate. They want you to take every event as life or death. 
They want you to take every worldview and put it through an all or nothing filter. It is designed to raise your temperature and to become ultimate. And when that person is talking with you and you're, you're having a collision of ideas or worldviews and your temperature starts to rise and you start to, uh, and you're fighting or fighting, fighting or flighting or freezing or fawning, whatever it is, it feels life and death, but you, you're invited at that moment to breathe and ask, why does this feel so ultimate? Some things are, most things aren't. And the litmus test to whether you're willing to lay down your own agenda, opinion, or expectation when it collides or confronts with reality is to say, is this ultimate? One of the prayers that I pray is my own translation of hallowed be your name. When we pray hallowed be your name, and I'm riffing on the Lord's Prayer, this is what I say maybe at least once a week. Hallowed be your name. May the name of Jesus be high and lifted up. High and lifted up above every other name. A banner under which we live and move and have our being. What am I praying? What might you pray in those moments when your temperature rises? May the name of Jesus be high and lifted up, that it's here, so that every other thing that is getting in my crawl will find its proper place here. It'll get sorted accordingly. Hallowed be your name. May the name of Jesus be lifted high and above every other name or candidate. May the cross be lifted high and above every other flag. May the name and way of Jesus be lifted high and above every other opinion on how I know the world ought to be run. Perhaps it'll line up, but perhaps there's some varnishes that I've added to it and Jesus is inviting us to be ultimate so that these things that may be important can find its proper place. Lord, I give you my life, but I'm not gonna give you my time. Another Litmus test is not just your temperature rising, but it's where's my time? Where you put your attention, listen, is where you give your time. And where you give your time is where you're giving your life. Your life is nothing more than where you're giving your energy, your focus, your attention. So when you're giving someone sitting next to you your attention, you're literally sharing your life with them. I am sharing with you these unrepeatable minutes and moments and I'm trying to lean in and show you that you are important. I'm giving you my literal life with this time. So think very carefully about where your attention is being given this holy week. When Reiner, this is like the fifth time I've mentioned Reiner today. When he was talking about the scripture and prayer time, what, do you, what comes to your mind with holy week? For me, it's attentiveness. It's like, what was Jesus up to today? He's probably talking and sparring in the temple. What was he up to on Thursday? Man, he was having his last supper with his disciples. And I want to give attention to that when I'm eating with whoever I'm eating with on Thursday. 
I want you to think about who, am I, who, who and what am I giving my attention to because that's who I'm giving my time to and whoever you're giving your time to is what you're giving your life to. And my iPhone, when I scroll over and it shows me my screen time, that shows me how much of my life was spent playing that Wudoku game <laughs> and how much I was on fantasy basketball that ends this week by God's grace. Okay. What matters most to you? Start with shifts this week. How can I focus and live intentionally this week? Not just because Easter's coming, Lord willing, but because I want to give my life to what matters. I want Jesus to be up here, and I want to surrender everything else and find it in its proper place underneath. It's one thing to wave a branch and say, yeah, you're great, you're great, but when it's hard... And when it really matters, am I going to be willing to follow him there? I went to a funeral this past week, and it always gets me thinking about what's going to be said at my funeral. And what I hope is said when I die is determined by what I do when I live. What I want said starts with how I'm choosing to give my ultimate, and I want it to be about Jesus and serving others and the least, and I want it less to be about playing guitar and skateboarding or something. I want it to be what matters and what's ultimate. The Lenten practices of giving, praying, and fasting are practices of the little deaths that model that death to self. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. And so in giving, I'm gonna show you that you're more important than my stuff. And that little death of choosing to give to the poor and give to the church and give to whatever it is that you feel led to give to is saying, I'm going to value this other above myself. And it's a little bit of a practice that releases the grip that our culture has over who we are matters because of what we have. And that little death helps you find life on the other side. To pray is to loosen your grip that you have it all figured out and that you have all the strength. It's a little death to say, I'm at the end of my rope, so I need you. Help. Save us. Hosanna. To fast is to loosen the grip on our appetites and to say, I think I can make it with your help, with your strength. I'm going to voluntarily disengage from this normal thing like eating or media or thought processes. I'm going to voluntarily give up on this so that I can more fully engage with what brings me life, not death. These are little deaths to give to release you from your stuff, to pray to release you from your own strength, and to fast to release you from your own self. So finally, some questions that get at my own agendas, my own expectations, my own varnishes. Jesus, let's praise you. Yes, this is awesome. He's got the cult. It's Passover. This is awesome. So when are you going to go kill Pilate? These questions in our own life 
Jesus, I love you. It's church. We're worshiping. I love those songs that Kelly sang. Yes, those prayers are pretty excellent. But also, I give you my life, but I won't give you what? Here are some questions to help us. Who am I unwilling to love? What am I unwilling to give? Where am I unwilling to serve? Jesus, I love you with my whole heart. One of my heroes, Dorothy Day, and I'm going to paraphrase this quote. She says, it's a terrifying thought that I love God as much as I love the person I like the least. Who am I unwilling to love? God, I love you with everything, but I really, really can't stand those people. Oh, they're your neighbor. What am I unwilling to give? What has gripped so tight that I'll wave a branch, but as soon as it comes down to the nitty gritty and it asks me to die or to go on the other side of town to the place of the skull and be crucified, no thanks. Where am I unwilling to serve and lay aside my own time and attention? Because if you're willing to lay down your coat when things are good, are you willing to lay it down when things are hard? And so I offer you this and me this reminder from where we began, Lent. That same talk when Jesus predicted that he's going to the cross, well, now he's actually there. He's at the final stretch. So I'll offer you this reminder again. Hold loosely to the things of this world so that you might cling tightly to Jesus. And when things are hard, lean hard into love. God is holy, God is wise, God is powerful, God is all of these things, but God through and through is love. A French philosopher, Simone Weil, said that God is love like an emerald is green. He just is It is every fiber and molecule. When God is judging a people who've rejected him, it's because he weeps, not to say I told you to. It's because he's grieved and it's from a place of love. When God redirects, it's from a place of love because he wants what's best for you. And when you're bleeding and dying, you look to the cross and see it's love that held him there. And you see that it's love that is the clearest expression that when we would kill God, he absorbs our sin, turns the other cheek and says, forgive. This is who God is. Lean hard into love. And finally, why should I lay down my own expectations? and Why should I do any of this? Because there's love and life to be found on the other side of sacrifice and death. And so you know it's not theory And so it's not just I'm feeling good about throwing my cloak down and I'm waving a branch. Would you imagine the hour of your death? And if you've practiced entrusting him with the little gifts and the little service and the little fasting, can you entrust your very last breaths with Jesus? At the hour of my death, Is it going to be theory or practice? Or can I with tears say, I I hope, I hope, I, I have faith. I believe and help my unbelief. But I want to go to you and entrust my life to you. Because I believe you conquered death once and I think you can conquer mine too.
Eugene Peterson's translation of the Beatitudes. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God in his reign, his rule. You're blessed when you're at the end of your agendas, expectations, opinions, and life. Because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. To follow Jesus on Palm Sunday invites us to follow all the way to the end of the road on the other side of the city. But those who lose their lives with him on Friday will find it in the garden with him again on Sunday. But there's struggle in between. So may we walk with him each and every step of the journey, trusting that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and even beyond. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. May we who stand at the gates of the city have courage to walk the rest of the path toward the cross. May God give us grace to recognize the king we proclaim and belong to his kingdom, even when it goes against our ways and the ways of the world, even when it leads us where we do not want to go. May God liberate us from the tempting alternatives of wealth and power and status and empower us to live lives of generosity and love and humility. May our journey through this holy week, with all the twists and turns and trials may bring, be a road marked with grace upon grace and just enough light to lead us on the way toward resurrection. Go in peace.